Good morning and welcome to Byfield Parish. We're glad you're with us today. Great to see you. It's uh, November. The clock's changed. I didn't see too many people pulling into the lot an hour early, so I guess you all remembered to set your clocks back. Well done. Uh, the weather today is just on the cusp of, uh, you know, the temperature that we'd uh, be moving back inside, but uh, next Sunday is supposed to be as high as maybe 60. And if that's the truth, we're going to stay outside. So be looking for an announcement on Thursday or Friday, and that'll give us an insight as to exactly how we'll handle worship next Sunday morning. If we are inside, there'll be an announcement to that effect. Mrs. Welland has an announcement for us about the women's luncheon. Good morning, everyone. you to see this but I know all of you can't over there on the line wherever you are but isn't this a lovely box and wouldn't you love to know what's in this box yeah. going 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 for $25 you may come on Saturday here in the fellowship hall we are distancing correctly with masks please and until you get to your seat and you will sit down in this box will be right in front of you full of lots of delicious goodies for you to eat. Following that, our daughter Andrea Polnasek will be speaking on Jezebel from To Compassion. And um, I know that God has filled her with his Holy Spirit to speak to you. Those of you who went on the ladies' retreat, all of you came up and said how God had blessed you. So I know that you will be blessed next Saturday if you come. But please let us know because we want to be sure that everybody has all the salads and all the good things that are going to be in this box for everyone. So please let Joan or Pat or Jane or me know today or call on the phone and tell us that you're coming please and we will have a wonderful blessed time together two hours and then we come right outside so nobody's going to get coronavirus god's going to watch over us i pray thank you but did i say 25 oh my goodness gracious me that's how nervous i get isn't that silly it's a long time since i've done announcements i used to do lots of them Five dollars. You can't beat it. What's in this box? Five dollars. Come with your smiling face under your mask. When you drop it at the table, we'll see your smiles. Enjoy. Thank you. Thank you. This Sunday is the Sunday where we think of the persecuted church. I don't know if you're aware of this, but about one in every ten Christians around the world faces persecution. Uh, life-threatening persecution. Over 250, 260 million people uh, go to bed every night not knowing what's going to happen the next day. And so you have in your bulletin an insert from Voice of the Martyrs that has a number of ways that you may pray. Let me invite you just to do that over the course of the next week or so, you know, choosing one of these things each day, uh, using God's word to affirm and to encourage the hearts of those who face these life-threatening situations. Um, with that, as our preliminary announcements, let me encourage you now to take a moment of quiet reflection, to quiet your heart, after which I'll issue a call to worship. Let's prepare our hearts to worship God.
The call to worship today comes from the book of Chronicles, where we read, Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wondrous acts. Glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all the peoples. Let me invite you to stand and join us as you're able to sing together, to praise our God and make his name known.
stars they went, the morning sun was down, the Savior of the world was fallen. His body on the cross, His blood poured out for us, the weight of every curse
you my God and King and praise your name forever and ever every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable gracious God we confess that we have sinned against you in thought word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone we have not loved you with our whole heart we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. We pray for First Congregational Church of Rowley. We pray that you will guide and direct that fellowship during this challenging time and that you would rekindle the first love that drove the creation of that congregation many years ago. Draw the members nearer to you and closer to one another as they seek to minister to their local community. We pray for those members of the family of faith who suffer from persecution and live under the fear of death. Our hearts are moved and staggered to think that one in every 10 persons who name Jesus as Lord and Savior live under persecution. That more than 260 million people this day in 50 countries who persecute believers will face the very real possibility of death. Technology and artificial intelligence are being used to restrict movement and assembling for worship. People are prevented from seeking medicine and other forms of relief from the impact of COVID. They're even being prevented from distributing masks to their fellow citizens as act of compassion. Lord God, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Make us people of prayer 
Make us people of intercession. Draw us to the throne of grace that we may plead on behalf of these, our brothers and sisters. We pray for Pat Harkins and the ministry of his provision. We give you thanks and praise for the new vehicle that has been provided and for the financial and material support that you have provided over the years. As the seasons change and the weather becomes increasingly cold, we pray for the clients and volunteers who participate in this ministry. We ask for safety, security, and health for all who are part of the ministry. We are thankful, Lord, that Noel Searles was returned home yesterday. We pray, Father, that you would continue to help him heal and mend him up, and that he would soon be able to be out and about once again. We're grateful that you've sustained him through this long journey as he's been in and out of hospital for more than three months. Lord, we pray for our nation as we prepare to vote on who will hold the highest office in our land. We pray for peace on election day and those days immediately afterward. We pray for there to be a definitive winner in the electoral college, such that the disruption that comes from a contested election will not be a factor in our national discourse. We pray now that you would prepare our hearts to receive the word that Pastor Fugate has prepared for today. Speak to us from your word and give us hearts that long to respond in a manner consistent with your teaching. Direct our hearts towards you and grow us closer together as we engage with your word today. All these things we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.
Thank you, Choir, for that timely reminder of what the work of Christ is in our lives. And we're about to take a moment now to celebrate that together. If you'd get out your little communion packet that you've received as you arrive, that'd be a wonderful thing. We're going to spend a time now as we hear God's word and as we contemplate the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. In doing so, let me read for you the word of the Apostle Paul as he's given to us in 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. With that admonition, let's spend a moment of reflection as we confess whatever sins there may be that would interfere with our ability to participate in this uh, sacrament in a worthy manner. I'll lead us in a word of prayer and then we'll uh, celebrate the breaking of the bread together. Let's spend some time in prayer. Father, on the night in which you were betrayed, you took bread. You offered it to your disciples and told them to take and eat. And Lord, as we gather here today, we're mindful that your sacrifice once was sufficient for all time. So now, Father, as we participate together, nourish us to the eating of this bread. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, ministering his name, we give you the bread.
In the same way, after supper, the Lord took the cup. And when he took it, he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take some time now and reflect on the sacrifice that Christ has made for us, after which we'll participate together. represents the blood that was shed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Drink it now in remembrance of him. Will you pray with me? God, in the eating of bread and drinking of a cup, we take very common, simple elements that remind us of the essence of life. We're reminded that you sacrificed your life willingly on the cross to grant us the life that we now hold. So we give you thanks and praise for what you've done. We ask you to continue to impress on our hearts the meaning of this sacrament and this time that we spend in your presence. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. All right, how's everybody doing? A little, little cold this morning. Hopefully everybody's holding up. Uh, I want to thank you all for being here and also for those that are joining us digitally online. So this is an interesting week. Late Tuesday night or early Wednesday morning, tens of millions of Americans will be very, very upset. At the same time, there will be tens of millions of other Americans that will be celebrating. Those who are upset will believe that the country has been condemned to a certain demise. The people celebrating will believe the opposite. Nobody knows for sure who will be crying and who will be celebrating when it comes to who won the presidential election. What everyone knows with absolute confidence right now is that the United States is a divided country. These divisions will not go away when the political ads cease. They will continue to manifest themselves and how coronavirus should be responded to. Tax policy 
cultural issues and a long list of other things. The church is not immune to the divisions that exist in the broader culture of the United States. If you ask a group of Christians about whether or not masks should be worn, you will get a variety of answers. Everything from the belief that masks endanger the health of those who wear them to not wearing a mask is the equivalent of playing Russian roulette with the lives of others. I am tired of trying to guess where people stand so I can know how to engage in conversation. I'm sure you are as well. I don't know about you, but I'm weary of the division in our country. And I am concerned about it in the church. The division in our world is discouraging. We can take some solace in knowing it is not a new problem. Back in the spring, I was trying to decide what to preach on in the fall. I felt led to preach on 1 Corinthians. This book was written to people working through the inevitable divisions that come about in our world. Through 1 Corinthians, God is letting us his people know how we should go about life in a world filled with so much divisiveness. We each have individual callings and a corporate calling as a church. While we will be in 1 Corinthians through Christmas, today we are actually going to begin this series in the book of Acts. It is in Acts 18 that we are told about the Apostle Paul's initial interactions with the people of Corinth. Out of these interactions, a church came into existence that Paul then wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians 2. So if you would please turn with me to Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, we'll read it through verse 11. That is Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went 
to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Paul going to Corinth was a strategic move. It was an important city. A lot of the reason for its importance was tied to its geography. Corinth is in a part of Greece known as the Peloponnese. The Peloponnese sort of hangs down off the bottom of Greece. At the time, what is now Turkey, then known as Asia, and Italy were the two most important parts of the Roman Empire. The emperor Strabo, I'm sorry, the geographer Strabo wrote, Corinth is located on the Isthmus and is the master of two harbors, one of which leads directly to Asia and the other to Italy. The exchange of merchandise from both distant countries is made easier by the city's location. To cross the Roman Empire from west to east or vice versa, you had three options. You could go by road, generally on foot, which took months. You could risk your life going down around the Greek peninsula by sea. Or you could take a boat journey to Corinth cross a few miles of land, hop on another boat, and be on your way. The best combination of safety and speed in the ancient world for those crossing the empire was to travel through Corinth. The city functioned like a toll booth, controlling access to a land bridge. Its geographical placement in the empire was a source of continual wealth. Most of this wealth was new money. The city had been refounded by Julius Caesar only about a hundred years before Paul came there, after it had been destroyed. The fortunes that had been made came through trade. Being rich exerted a strong pull on the population. In general, in the Roman world, if you weren't born rich, it was pretty hard to become rich. Corinth was one of the best places to try to do so. The city attracted ambitious people. Religiously, it was a microcosm of the Roman Empire. For the most part, religious life was based around the pagan worship of a multitude of gods. But Corinth was known for its focus on two particular gods. 
The first was the goddess Aphrodite, who is the goddess of sex. The other was Asclepius, who is the god of physical and mental health. The imperial cult, which worshipped the emperor as a deity, also exerted a strong influence. We know that there was a minority Jewish population from what Paul writes. The situation we should probably imagine is one in which there was no dominant religious dogma, but every citizen cobbled together a synchristic religious perspective by picking and choosing what they like from the buffet of options available to them. None of the things that made Corinth the place it was at the time made it an easy place to be a Christian. The challenges we face trying to live as Christians on the North Shore in 2020 share a lot of similarities to what Paul faced in Corinth. Like Corinth, the Boston area is important. We exist at a crossroads of a globalized world. If you were to make a list of the 50 most important cities in the world, Boston would be on that list. It may even crack the top 25. To a certain extent, this is true geographically. People certainly come and go from all over the world through mm. and to Boston. It is even more true when you think about the way the internet has changed how the world operates. <laughs> people are drawn here from all over. Ambitious people are attracted to this area. Economically, we are wealthy. Like the people of Corinth, the wealth we enjoy is the product of a capitalistic system that is dependent on trade. The bigger similarity between our 21st century experience and what was happening 2,000 years ago in a Roman city is the extent to which wealth is the primary focus in our community. People want to have money so they can enjoy spending it. Faith has a hard time attracting much attention. When it comes to church, it is not so much that most people are anti-church. They're just more interested in gaining and enjoying wealth. In most people's lives, God just doesn't rank as a priority. There's just no space. Religiously, our area is a microcosm of the competing trends happening throughout the United States. The best label for religious practices in our communities is, in my opinion, moralistic, therapeutic deism. This term came out of a book written in 2005 by sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton. There are five main beliefs that it consists of that they describe. One, a God exists who created the ordered world and watches over human life. Two, 
God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Okay, I can work with that. That sounds okay so far. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Five, good people go to heaven when they die. The vagueness of moral therapeutic deism allows those who practice it, for the most part, to define good for themselves. The divine is an abstract concept. The religious perspectives that are so common in our world are incredibly similar to what you would have found in Corinth. People now may be less explicitly pagan, but like the ancient Corinthians, people today cobble together a spirituality out of the buffet of options available to them that aligns with their own moralistic, therapeutic deism. Religion in 21st century America is focused on what makes a person feel good. In many ways, the world we experience today is very similar to the world Paul experienced 2,000 years ago. What is definitely unchanged is the mission we are called to as Christians. Paul had one goal, to point others towards Jesus Christ. Everything he did was in service of this goal. Paul is always pushing forward into new territories. He is never resting on what he has previously accomplished. He is driven. Paul will do whatever it takes to tell people about Jesus, even if it means taking on a day job. To support himself in Corinth, he finds work as a tent maker. This is not a glorious job. It didn't pay super well. It's easy for us to look at all Paul did, traveling from city to city, supporting himself, and think, that's impressive. That's impressive, right? But that's not how I should be living. I mean, Paul was an apostle, and if we're being honest with ourselves, he was also just a little bit over the top in general, a bit too intense for my liking. I am definitely not that. I do not have his gifts or his personality. This is all well and good. But every Christian shares the same overarching mission. We are called to share the love of God we have experienced with the world. We do this through acts of service, whether that be feeding the poor or lending a hand to a neighbor, and also by pointing others to Jesus, the ultimate source of truth and love. Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks in an effort to accomplish this goal. The way Paul went about talking to people in Corinth is important. The Greek word translated as reason is diolegomai, 
Paul had an ongoing dialogue or conversation. He did not berate the people he spoke to. He asked questions and he let them ask questions of him. He tried to persuade. He wasn't just talking to talk. He believed what he had to share with the people in the synagogue and elsewhere was important for them. Too often in our conversations, we are either overly aggressive in sharing what we believe, we don't listen, or we don't try to persuade at all. Conversations Christians have shouldn't be one-sided. Neither should we not be trying to persuade. Ultimately, if we are trying to point others towards Jesus, we are doing so out of a belief that sharing the truth of Christ is a way we are showing love. We can learn from the way Paul talked. We can also learn from who he talked to. He tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. The division between Jews and Greeks in the Roman world was significant. Paul, of course, had a Jewish background. But he did not let his own identity limit him. His personal identity was secondary to his identity in Christ. There are Christians in the world today that don't think that they can speak to people that differ from them politically. Our identity isn't in our status as registered Republicans or registered Democrats. Our identity is determined by the love God has for us that he expressed through Jesus Christ on the cross. Anything we prioritize ahead of our identity as children of God is a problem that must be dealt with. When we understand who we are in God, it supersedes every division we might have with others. The mission we have as Christians is not easy. It never has been. Adversity should be an expectation for Christians. This was certainly the case in Corinth. The religious people in the city opposed and reviled Paul. It escalated to the point that he moved on. He went to the Gentiles. The people that rejected Paul were the ones that were supposed to be the most on board with what he was saying. <clears throat> Living out faith in, the in Jesus in the world is not easy. Speaking truth, even when it is done in love, will sometimes result in separation for Christians Rejection comes with the territory. And nowhere in Scripture does it imply living out the Christian faith is going to be easy. In fact, the opposite is true. 1 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus 
will be persecuted. In John 15, 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. As we sit here, there are millions of Christians all around the world who are experiencing persecution on a scale that we cannot fathom. They cannot worship God freely. Their faith could cost them property or freedom or even their lives. I read a thing today that every day, eight Christians around the world die for their faith. Thankfully, Christians in the United States do not experience this. We do feel culturally excluded at times. The soft pressure to be silent is significant. Adversity should not cause us to stop living out our Christian faith. Today's verses seem to imply that Paul himself may have gotten discouraged in Corinth. One night the Lord came to Paul in a vision and said, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. It wouldn't make much sense for God to show up in a vision and say this unless Paul were struggling. It is easy to understand why he might have been considering moving on. Nobody likes to experience adversity. It is tempting to look for an easier path, some new person or group that will be easier to love. It is this sort of thinking that leads Christians to hop from church to church. Do you know what you will discover whatever church you are in once you get to know the people that are there? They are hard to love. The same thing would happen if you move to another community, another town, or another state. There is no Eden in this world. While nobody wants adversity, it is often an indication that progress is being made. You see this in every area of human life. The better a sports team is, the more difficult the opponents they will have to face. The successful business will be viewed as a threat by its competitors more than one that is just scraping by. The more Christian love is seen as a threat to the divisions that exist in the world, the more adversity should be expected. Adversity can be an indication for Christians that we are succeeding, that we are on the right track. There are many vested interests in the world that will resist change to the divided status quo of this world. Over the coming weeks, we will be going through the letter of 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote it to, to a church there that was existing in the midst of a wealthy, religiously pluralistic and strategically important culture. This church was called to point others towards Jesus through the lives of individual Christians that made it up. Doing so required faithfully loving 
through serving and speaking the truth. Adversity was a given. The North Shore of Boston is not Corinth. But there are many similarities. Believers today have the same calling believers had then and will face similar challenges. We are called to show the world the love of God we have been shown. We should expect adversity. First Corinthians will help us understand how to move forth in our faith individually and corporately as we engage with the divided world. Tuesday is election day. Our nation will be divided. The purpose of Christians at this time is clear. We are to enter into this divided world forming relationships, showing love and speaking truth. Our primary focus should be God's calling on our lives. Adversity will come. It shouldn't be pursued, but it should be expected. We are to do what Jesus Christ did himself, faithfully love the, the people we have an opportunity to love in word and deed. This is what Paul did in Corinth. It is what God called the church in Corinth to do through Paul's letters to them. It is what we are called to do in our circumstances. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we do come to you at a time of great division in our world. We come to you tired, tired of dealing with that division, tired of, of making decisions, of arguing, of discussing, Lord, but also recognizing that these divisions are a reflection of the brokenness of this world. And that you have called us to love this world because of the people in it. I pray that you would help us as we engage with the divisiveness of our culture. I pray that this divisiveness would be held at bay from your church in general and this church in particular, Lord. I pray that in addition to loving those that we run into, that we would love each other well. And I pray that we would be able to speak truth, that we would be able to have dialogue, that we would be able to listen and ask questions, Lord. Once again, I pray for each of us individually. I pray for this church, and I pray for our nation. In Jesus' name, amen.